in this new fall class, let, let's pray and thank the Lord that we're together and ask Him to empower us by His Spirit to serve Him faithfully in this year. Father, we come to You realizing that it is a very testy and difficult time in our country. And yet You have placed us here. And You have placed us here to serve You and as Keith said in the message he preached in California this past Sunday, you have called us, Father, to be here not as an audience, but an army of righteousness to follow you. And that is what we want to do. Guide our studies that we may apply them to our lives as we study first for young men who grew old and powerful in the Spirit of God, trusting you. We thank you that we could be here, and I want to ask for every person here that they have a wonderful, not only day, but this fall would be one where they look back and say, the Lord moved in our life in those days. Thank you for this time now. We thank you especially for Hunter and Savannah and little Caleb. We pray that he might grow up to be a man of God in every way. Thank you for parents who love you intensely and we'll raise them to him biblically. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is delightful to be with you, and you may remember, let me get myself seated. I'm doing rabbinical. Uh, rabbis always sit when they teach. And uh, with, this leg is doing better, but I'm still sitting some. We are going, we were in the book of Ephesians when we completed. We hadn't gone that far. But God's Spirit moved me and through mainly what some of the things we underwent this summer in interacting with folks who understand a lot about what's happening in our country. Our oldest son being one of them, Keith and Mark from the financial world and others that we needed to shift a bit and take into our minds and hearts God's Word in a way, hello Jim, come in, and that will cause us to serve faithfully. Now in this, we are going to do it by going back to the Old Testament. Some of you have been with us uh, when we studied Daniel and church situations. Daniel is just in a way of introduction is one of the most crucial books in all of Scripture. It is the most maligned book in the Old Testament. There's nothing close to the anger of people against God and using Daniel as something they totally reject. And there was a book written about the time I was uh, going to seminary many mango seasons ago in the last century uh, called Daniel in the Critics' Den. And it's well, uh, as it were, named or titled. Because if Daniel is true, if Daniel had happened to him and has the vision, had the visions he had and the, the things the Spirit of God brought him and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If that is true, I promise you, we have a supernatural book in our hands. Now, I believe that all of the Bible is inspired by God, or as the scripture says, God breathed. And it is given to us for the teaching and righteousness, and to be able to live the very life of Jesus Christ, and to bring him to the world. But Daniel is special. Daniel, as I said, is the most maligned book in the Old Testament. And that continues to be true. Some of you have heard this story, but forgive me, some of you have not. Uh, back in the uh, last century, I was pastoring a church in Dallas, Northwest Bible Church. It was uh, between Highland Park and University Park. And we had a lot of uh, both professors and students who went to SMU, Southern Methodist University. 
And so occasionally they would ask me to come over and do a class. They had a Campus Crusade had a class every Thursday night that ran between 300 and 400 students, and they were mostly first and second year. Well, one of them, they asked me to come, and I chose to take Daniel and deal with the historicity of Daniel and the fact that it is a supernatural book if it is what, in fact, it says it is, a book that God gave through Daniel, the Word. Now, I did it, and I did it from an apologetic standpoint. We'll touch on that. Some of you would like sometimes to do an apologetic work with Daniel, we can take an evening and do that. It, it is very helpful. But there, at the university campus, with the students and an auditorium that seated about 400, and it was jammed, and that was exciting. Uh, we, I taught on Daniel apologetically how we know it is the Word of God. Now, you know, I, you always like to think whatever you say, somebody's just dying to hear it. But sometimes that's not true, particularly with students, uh, and you go speak in a college. But on this night, you'd have thought I was giving away $100 bills, and I couldn't really understand. I mean, they were, and the question time, we would have been there today still if we'd have taken all the questions. And so finally, when it was all through, I talked to one of the students that we knew that went to Northwest, and uh, was an SME at SME, I think he was a sophomore at this time, and I said, tell me, I mean, this was, uh, there was unusual interest in this, and I know it's not me, but he says, well, we just had in our religion class, our religion Bible class, a class on the book of Daniel, and it was designed to basically say that Daniel cannot be true that it was written in the 2nd century, not the 5th century B.C., and the guy just tore it apart. And I understood why. Well, I want to say to you in all candor, and as sincerely as I can, Daniel is from God. It is without error, and it brings us things that we do not find anywhere else. And it does that because God and Daniel is preparing us for what's coming. And, and when you look at Daniel, you really see that uh, there are three things that stand out in this. And the first one is the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign. The second is that Daniel is a book that has in it prophecy that is supported by history. The third in it, Daniel is a book that teaches us how in our time, we as Francis Schaeffer used to say, shall now live. And we're doing it for those three reasons. Now, we are turning to Daniel tonight. We will go through it. I do not know how long we'll take. We'll take questions because we'd like to scratch all of us where we itch, and we want you to know. The second thing uh, is, though, well, this is part of a three-book series, and if God gives us strength in life, I hope we can go together in this and go through it. The second book we are going to deal with is a natural flow from Daniel. And there's a fourth reason for Daniel that God gave it to us. It is a book that prepares and declares the coming of Jesus Christ, like no book in the Old Testament. And the book that really unfolds it is the first gospel. Now, we know we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're all wonderful. My pastor right now, our pastor, is teaching from John, and he's just doing a great job. But... Matthew is the book that really ties in with the Old Testament. Uh, as my son Keith likes to say, the Old Testament is the New Testament hidden, hidden. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And I think that is true. And really, Matthew really goes back to Daniel again and again. And so we are going to do these three books, God willing 
first Daniel, then Matthew, and finally we're going to do the Magna Carta of the church because that is what we are. Now, understand as the church, we are part of something else. We are the church part of the kingdom of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord gave a challenge to all Israel and all people. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. On the day our Lord, one of the days that he was meeting with his disciples after his resurrection in that 40-day period, we discover that in all of those days he was teaching them things dealing with the kingdom of God. And so we are part of that kingdom. And Matthew really takes us into that kingdom. Now, we are kingdom people today on earth. We are the very body of Christ. And we will study Ephesians to look at that. Because that's what we are today. That will be our third book. Daniel, Matthew, Ephesians. But we must know that finally we are all part of the kingdom of God. And that is so crucial. As we start this morning, I want us to... This morning, this evening... Yeah, I, I've got my clock turned around. It is evening, isn't it, sweetie? Yes, good. Uh, anyway, we, we are coming to Daniel as a picture of what is happening in our nation. Now, history is not circular. Somebody will say history repeats itself. It does not. Sin and Satan and his demons are circular. They repeat themselves. They, they rerun. They have nothing new to say. Demons are in somebody here, and that's a generation there. Same demons. They will be dealt with later. But what we are seeing in this time is a movement of both God and a movement against God that really tell us we are certainly in the shadows of late afternoon of humanity's time on this earth before the Lord returns. And I really, uh, listening to uh, a number of the people we talked to this summer, and uh, people who really are involved in a lot of things for righteousness' sake, but they realize that we, and they, they talk about it, and we all interacted on what's happening now. We are seeing evil bring about things that we did not think could happen. Right. I had to think back to pastoring Northwest. We were there 12 years. It was really, in a sense, the crown of our pastoral life. We loved it. We still love it. We love the people there that are still there. Some are already in, in the presence of the Lord. But one thing uh, we found, we were in an awakening. You could, you know, we kept building auditoriums because more people <laughs> kept coming. That's turned and changed. We see the church right now, and much of the church is trying to fit in with the culture. They're going woke, if you use that term. Others are, people are just dropping out of Christianity. But I want to encourage you to say on the other side, there's not only a remnant, but there is a remnant that is excited and growing. I hope you saw what happened at Auburn University, an awakening now. I went to Georgia Tech. We're not far from Auburn. We prayed them every year in football. That's how I went through college. And I want to tell you, they were not having awakenings over there when we came. But we are seeing them now. And our time on this earth is to, as God's people, his kingdom people who are the very body of Christ, we are to see more and more people become part of this movement to turn back, turn to God and be his remnant. And it's coming with young people again, and that is very exciting. And so this is to help us do it. When we come to Daniel, we come to uh, a time in history when things were exploding on every side. Daniel is written, and uh, it, it covers a period from about 609 down to uh, 539. Daniel, we believe, died in 536 B.C. But it was a time when some of the 
powers that had been in the world and particularly in the Middle East. Remember, the Middle East is the birthplace of humanity. Even the staunchest atheist who happens to be uh, familiar with uh, anthropology would agree, yeah, people started here, they have all kinds of reasons for that. But the Middle East is where it started, where great nations grew. Daniel deals with the, as it were, the elimination of two distinct nations. First, the elimination of Assyria. And secondly, the elimination of Egypt as a power. They both go down in the time of Daniel. And it brings us to the rising, though it is a short reign, of one huge power, and that was Babylon. Now, I like to, when I preach on Daniel now, I usually call it back to Babylon. The reason I call it back to Babylon is that Babylon is next door to where Abraham lived in Ur of the Kasdim. Uh, Daniel deals with people. The, Daniel, Babylon has men. The wise men are really people of the Kasdim. And so it all started right there. And of course you see this on our map. Ur is here, Babylon is here, and you have the Fertile Crescent that comes down into Israel. You can see right away, by the way, why Israel is so important. It is the highway system between Saudi, what we call today Saudi Arabia, or over here Babylon, Assyria, and then over here, Egypt. In other words, it goes, and then finally on up into Europe. All the ways to these various regions, continents, and nations comes through this little narrow piece of land called, in the time of the scripture, and we call it that today, the land of Israel. Uh, every time I go there, and we'll be going there again this December, uh, it, it, you, you, when you're landing, you sense you've come back to the very heart of it all. The interesting thing is that is something that Ezekiel agrees with. In Ezekiel chapter 38, he calls Jerusalem, which is the heart of Israel right here, right here, you see it right there, he calls it the navel, the belly button of the earth. And it truly is. But we are going to wind up going back to near Ur, back to Babylon, and it's like everything that God had done for Israel and tried to help them with fell apart. And it wasn't God's fault, obviously, it was them. In fact, some of you were over in Fredericksburg and heard the series on Manasseh and Josiah that we did at Fredericksburg Bible Church. And by the way, let me say something on it. Next week, I will not be speaking here, but I will be here. Our, my pastor is going to speak for us. Now you say, well, he's, he's new. Yeah, and the pastorate he is. He's very good. I just hope we can hold on to him. But he is a lawyer. He's in his 40s. He was the, a partner in a very large law firm. And he, in his field of law, he is a world expert. And he's highly regarded. This about a month ago, one of the former Supreme Court justices of Texas died. Very famous guy, a Christian. The Senate and the Texas government asked Alex, and Alex Garcia is the name of our pastor, if he would come and do that memorial service. That's something else, gang. Well, Alex is a humble guy. We love him. He's doing wonderfully in this law firm, and all of a sudden, uh, he's going to taking uh, classes from Dallas Theological Seminary online, committed Christian, and his wife is just as equally committed and a wonderful lady. But as he's doing this, loving his law, God, God says, that's not where I want you. I want you to be a pastor. And he resigned from his law, and he went to seminary 
And he's, that's why we go to Fredericksburg Bible Church. And it's just, you know, I'm going back to the Bible, fellas, to say, the reason I wanted to tell you this, he's going to speak here next week. And I need to tell you that. And what he's going to do for us, he's one of the guys that has a handle on what's happening in this nation. And ask everybody you can. He has a, I mean, he knows what's going on. And he's going to speak for us next week. And so I'm thankful that he's coming. I hope he'll be here. Okay, now we'll go to the Bible first. Okay. <laughs> I need to tell him he's coming next week. Poor Alex would get here and say, well, what up? Anyway. Okay, we want to begin with Daniel. And I'd like to do it in a sense as we would see the very beginning. Let me read the first two verses of chapter 1. As I said, I do not know how far we get. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadrezzar, and that's how you pronounce his name, but we use Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This was actually in the year of 609, and he takes, he takes he, it was no big fight, he takes Jerusalem at that point. And uh, we're going to see something now that happens in 606. I'll touch on several things. This is a, it would have been a great time to be a biblical newspaper man uh, in this time. Everything is happening. But anyway, he besieges Jerusalem and he takes over. He leaves a king in, in uh, power, but he's a puppet king. Verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God and we're not really sure what God probably Baal a bell is the the Babylonian God that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped but we're not sure they had more gods than people in Babylon but what we find here is that God gave Jehoiakim into his hand and Jehoiakim comes after him as young is actually as his older brother but the Lord did it now why did he do that well he'd already told Judah you know what happened to the northern kingdom well, when they had started uh, worshiping idols. That's right. And what did God do? He took them to Syria. That's right. He took them to, he took them to, to Syria and the Syria, set them everywhere. And, uh, Assyria, but he sent them, Assyria sent them everywhere. And uh, that happened in 722. Now, the southern kingdom goes on and they, they do sort of, they had Hezekiah, great king. And their last really good king was Josiah, but Josiah, when he took over, had already been told, you are going to spare Judah for a while, but when you're gone, they're gone. And what happened was, he'd already told, God had already said that Josiah's father, who's Josiah's father? Starts with an M. Manasseh. Manasseh ruled 50. Grandfather. No. No, he's a grandfather. Yes, I'm sorry, grandfather. Yeah, it was. Ammon, Ammon only ruled two years. That's why I thank you, sweetie. But Manasseh ruled 54, 55 years between that. And he was the worst king that Judah ever had. And God said the game's over with him. You see that in 2 Kings. The amazing thing we find out is Manasseh is taken prisoner by the Assyrians. They send him to Babylon where that they control. And in prison, he turns to God and he's converted. Salvation can come to anyone who will trust God and turn to him. But at any rate, we see that with him, God said it's over. Josiah kept them from having problems until 609 he died in 609 and he died doing something God said uh, he shouldn't do he went out to fight against the Egyptians and Pharaoh Nico who was the Pharaoh Egypt is trying to push their way back in with Assyria and be powerful and both of them are going to beat up on Babylon and when he 
when uh, Josiah realizes that the Egyptians have come up to the valley of Megiddo and they're going to fight, he goes against them. And Pharaoh and Nicole said, we didn't come to fight you. We're not going to bother you. Go back home. Well, every king wants to win a battle. And he was killed in the battle. And it was the end, 609, of Judah's chance. And they go straight in, as it were, to the pit. In 609, they are taken over by Nebuchadnezzar, who is the new king of Babylon, and uh, his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had been king before him. They're taken over, and then in 586, what happens? Destroyed the temple. Yeah, and Jerusalem. They put it in ruin. But something happened in 606, and that's what we're going to talk about. Now, I do want to mention what happened when he, God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into, the, into his hands, that is, into Nebuchadnezzar. What happened is he took the vessels of the house of God and put them in the house of his God. And that was a way to say, when you defeated someone, you are saying, I not only defeated you, I defeated your God. I beat your God. Now I want to say something about our guy. He doesn't put up with that. Now he's going to let Judah have all the problems, but he's going to let Babylon know who runs the show. And it is going to be very distinctive. And so that's what we have before us. And as I said, the book of Daniel, one of the purposes of it is to show the sovereignty of God. And boy, it does. And that's what we are seeing about to take place, I believe, in America. Doesn't uh, I think it's I think it's Jeremiah, but it might be Ezekiel. It, in there, doesn't God tell? Uh, I think it's Jeremiah. He said, "Look, the uh, northern tribes were taken, and the southern tribe becomes the treacherous sister who never yeah, Jeremiah saw." Jeremiah three, yeah, Jeremiah three. Yeah, yeah never saw that. Yeah, they, they didn't pay any attention to what God did. You know what? When Pat and I saw that, I went, oh my gosh, that's us. Yeah, it is us. We've had the Bible since before 1600. Yeah. Yes, and what we're about to do, and I want to get a read from Keith on what's happening with this. The Bible is being redone now by a very powerful woke group. And it's not being retranslated, it's being edited. And I'll get the information, and when I get it, I'll let you know. Hold on to your Bibles. Okay, so we've got this, that, and the God, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I beat your God. And he takes the vessels of God, he takes the menorah, he takes all of those things, the table, and he puts them into the house, probably, of Baal, his God. Now, we have suddenly moved from the international national fighting to what the king of Babylon did to help his nation. And it was really a very smart thing. When he took a country, he would take the best and the brightest and bring them to Babylon. And that was really a smart, smart move. You, just, you couldn't beat that. And that's what it says. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youth in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking. Literally, the Hebrew, I was reading this in the Hebrew text this morning. They were good to look at. The gal says, woo very good. That guy, he's, he's something. Well, that's what they were getting. So if you want to understand how the four we mentioned, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, how they look, they look very good. But it goes on to say, they also were some of the royal family and of the nobles, and I suspect that Daniel was out of that. Now the question is, they take these from different countries, and, I, and if you read other texts about that time that come from that area, from other countries, you see the same thing. They would take them from uh, Syria, Assyria, wherever they took them, they took them home. And by the way, Assyria was defeated by Nebuchadnezzar in uh, 612. That was a huge battle. 
and he defeated the Assyrians totally. The next great battle he would fight would be a year after what we're reading about now in 605, and that is the Battle of Carchemish. Now, I'm not going to go into that in detail because some of you are not that interested. Felicia, yes, she agrees with that. But he 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 was a he was a fighter and he he was running the show. But he takes these sons, youths in whom there was no defect, good looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving or stand really to stand before the king. Now you say, well, why stand before the king? You didn't go into the king's presence unless you were asked, and you didn't go in unless he had something for you to do or something he wanted to do to you. Of course, you'd prefer the former. And so these are going to be young men, and the age is the next thing, how old. We have both uh, from Greek literature, uh, from two Greek, uh, actually we have it from uh, Socrates talks about it, and Phanos, the two Greek uh, writers who say that the age of these young men was from fort, they were 14, and they would study for three years. It was a three-year course, so they got out at 17. We don't know if that's accurate, but it sounds about right. And so they are, they are taught, and we'll talk about what they're taught. And, and he's for serving in the court of the, the king's court, and he ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, we need to talk about this just a bit. God is going to use one of these young men, in fact, all four of them, in a way that uh, they had no idea. But you need to ask a question about them. How was it that these four young men who we're going to meet in a moment came in there and all the pressure to go pagan was there and they didn't do it. That's a great question because our young people are under pressure to go pagan. I love what Alice and what LCA is doing. One of the most important things that's happening in our country. And we, we know young people are ready when they are challenged and they understand to make a change. And so this is what we're going to see here and how it happens. But these young men came ready already. They came to Babylon. They saw all of it. And that is something that uh, really was incredible. Now, the question is... When they came, what, how did they get there, and what was Babylon like? Well, the first thing, how they got there, as far as we can tell, they, didn't, they weren't unlike any other prisoners. They weren't under great duress, I don't think, but they walked. They walked all the way around. It's 1,200 miles approximately. From here, all the way around, down to here. And... I think they also probably were tested a bit along the way. We don't know that. But they are brought, and then they are placed in what I call Nebuchadnezzar University. And they are going to study in Nebuchadnezzar's university. There in the land of Shinar. By the way, did you see that word? The, land, word there, the word Shinar? That's an old word. It is goes back to the Tower of Babel. Babel. Babel and Babylon are the same city. And you see Satan is raising it up against. And so they go back and that's where they are going to study. Now, as we look at them, I always like to narrate their trip. Walking from Jerusalem for these back to Babylon around the Fertile Crescent wasn't a pleasant stroll. They're walking with dust and uh, all kind of problems. Very dry country. I know there's two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, but it was not a happy experience. But that was only the beginning. 
and uh, that is we need to see them marching and going and all of a sudden somebody says look out there and they started to all what are you seeing and they began to see the city of Babylon the city of Babylon and we will deal with this more directly later was incredible it had eight gates it had uh, a huge god mountain called an Edomonaki and it's like a pyramid and this god mountain had seven levels and uh, and the priests of Babylon would go to the top of this and they would offer offerings to their gods and they as I said had more gods than people every one of the eight gates had a was named for a god but the one they would enter the most important royal gate was the gate of Ishtar and as they came to that gate they would see a gateway like they had never seen before the gate itself had lions they had golden lions and red lions with blue all made out of tile with backgrounds of blue tile and along the street as they came to the gate the streets the stones the street not cobblestone flat stones millstones changed because on each stone it said Nebuchadnezzar 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 they had never seen anything like this it was incredible and as they came you can imagine what they felt you see what the object of the king was was first to educate them but then to immerse them in Babylonian religions and finally to see them in submission to him and the gods of Babylon and so that's what they are doing they're bringing them back they come and they as they come they're told probably they have a three-year curriculum and they were going to study, he tells you, they're going to study the uh, literature and language of the Kal The Kasdim is really how you should say that. But this include, and it included good things. It included mathematics, it included the sciences, certainly included uh, astronomy, but also astrology, you know, worshiping the gods in the sky. But it also had a healthy dose of religion it was like also having a seminary course at the same time and that religion was about all of the gods of Babylon now we do not know all that they learned but we do know the pressure was immense to change and that brings us to verse 6 now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These are all Hebrew names. All of these men are going to immediately feel pressure well, to get along. And that's, the, you know, we had long discussions about this on vacation with not only Phil and I, but with others who love the Lord and also with our sons that the churches today are wanting to get along rather than to be holy and turn the world to God. And that surely was the pressure here. And these young men are, are feeling this. And you say, well, you know, how could they stand against it? And that's the question you want to ask. How were they able to stand against it with all of these courses? Now, that's still the way it is. Uh, I year where some of our grandchildren want to go to college and I go hey, but I know some of them I have one of them real well that's going to a very fine university but they have all the pressures but boy he's 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 not falling for it. well this is how and we're going to see that and so we see it right away in chapter one they're now in Babylon I don't know if they had dormitories or not. They did have to eat in the dining hall of Nebuchadnezzar's U. Now, I got to tell you, I, I went to Georgia Tech. That was my undergraduate degree. 
And fortunately, I went on a football scholarship because I get to eat at the training tables. But several times, some of my friends say, why don't you come and eat with us in the cafeteria? I did it once, and it was really bad. I mean, I don't want to do this. But that's not true of this situation. In fact, these young men, the king appointed for them a daily ration, verse 5, from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. That should really stir us. Stir us as we read this account that they are going to face all kind of pressures. One, their name change had to be, they didn't fight that, they didn't say no. And Daniel's name, by the way, was Belteshazzar and the others we've given you. But this, uh, this issue about the cafeteria and the food, this is the first real big test. And you say, why? Wow, it's good food. Well, you see this food that had Nebuchadnezzar's banquet brand on it. This food was not first offered to them or even the king. The various priests of Babylon would take the food, sometimes take it up on the Edomonaki, sometimes somewhere else, and they would offer it to the gods. And they, gods didn't eat very much, so they'd take it out, and then they offered it to the people, the king and all of his nobles and also the students. Now, it would have been very easy to say, well, yeah, I'll just cross my fingers and eat this. Because to eat that food that was offered to the gods was to worship that God. You see, that's the biggest single issue. And it's the biggest single issue today. Who do you worship? Who is God to you? Do you believe there is a God? And do you trust in Him and obey Him? And that was something. Well, Daniel said no. And we'll come back to this. And now among them... Uh, were the sons of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and they get their names. And they don't, Belshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Meshach, to Meshach, Yeah, to Meshach, to Mishael, I got to get it right. Mishael, he he is called Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. So they get the name. That doesn't bother them. Well, you know, Pat and I did some research on the on the names, and this is what we came up with. Daniel means God is my judge. Right is what we got. Ananiah, beloved of the Lord. Mishael. Michelle. Who, who is as God and Azariah, the Lord is my help. Right. They changed their names to the Babylonian name, Belshazzar, Prince of Bel. Yeah. Shadrach, illuminated by the sun god. Yeah. This is putting some pressure on these guys. Meshach, who is like unto the moon god. Yeah. And Not Abednego, not. servant of Nego, a shining fire. We also found out that Abednego in the Chaldee version. Translate to, translates to Lucifer. Yeah, yeah it's, it's direct to Satan, uh, direct line. So, yeah, the, these these names were of Babylonian gods, and it was to have the name was, although they allowed that, it didn't mean you had to be worshipped. You see the I same. Think they were by themselves. They were. What, you remember, there was a place we see this before by another man who was taken to a kingdom that wasn't Israel, or a, tri a tribe that surely wasn't Israel, and he became the grand visor of the land. Who was that? Joseph. Joseph, that's right. And Joseph was given a, a new name by Pharaoh. But that didn't bother them. That didn't mean they worshiped that guy. That's what they're saying. But the food, verse 8, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission 
from the commander of the officials, the officials not to defile themselves. Now Daniel makes a stand. He, there's a line he won't cross. And the question is, where is that line? And secondly, who made him prepare him not to cross it? First, what was the line that he crossed? He wouldn't eat. Well, well why, did he, why did he say he wouldn't eat it? Well, because it means he's worshiping these gods. But why would he not cross this and just cross his finger and worship? Because the food was... Uh, well, it was already dedicated to the... Uh, the gods. So he would gods. be worshiping another god. And what does the scripture say about worshiping any other god? That's right. You shall have no other god before the Exodus 20. And then if you go over... Daniel, he was well taught. If you go over to Deuteronomy, Moses in his last word, message to Israel before they left and he died on, over in the other side of the Jordan, we read that uh, the, uh, he says, they sacrificed to demons who were not God. In other words, he says, the gods that aren't, aren't, Jehovah, aren't Yahweh, they are demons. And they knew that. And so he is not going to worship this, these other gods. And that's, that's the line. Now the second question is, why did he have that line? Why did, because he purposed in his heart. Why did he, what made he prepare it for that, you think? His family. Well, yeah. He had, he yeah. Had his, parents. Family. his parents. Yeah. Yeah. Family, his parents. That's an important issue, gang. What we are seeing today is an attempt to tear the family apart. Mm -hmm. Communism does this. They did it long ago. Now we're into it. And the whole gender issue, all of this fits in with tearing the family apart. But he had a family that said, no, the Lord is God. And I, I would love to have met the parents of these four young men. Yes. They are something. And when you meet one of them, you really are, you would be moved. God doesn't tell us who they are, but I promise you, that's bring up a child. Proverbs 22, 6. Bring up a child in the way she or he shall go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. And they did that. And so the question is, are they going to hang in there? Oh, yeah. We're looking at Nebuchadnezzar who changed uh, the, the uh, power of nations, but with Daniel we're looking at a man who changed the, the total life of nations. And he with the four are going to do that. Now, so they trusted the Lord. Uh, you might also add to that Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 4. Uh, that's the great Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Hear us, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your ma'od in Hebrew. And that means anything else you got left over, you love God with that too. And that's what these four men are. And that's what we want to see our children become. And first, be sure we're there. Gang, we are going to be pushed and shoved. Believe it. And it is just incredible to see what Satan is trying to do. But with people who will stand and have been raised by parents and others who love the Lord and teach them to worship Him and Him alone, they will win the day. And we need to know that. And so that's what this book is really about. It's about a great nation, and, uh, but it really is about how God is sovereign over that nation. He's sovereign over four young men. Before it's over, Nebuchadnezzar is going to trust in God. And but I love how Daniel did it. Yeah, well, tell us how good. That's the next question. How did he do it? He did it uh, nice. He asked permission. And he said, if it doesn't work, um, then we'll, we'll, we'll do it. He, um, and, and, and they went along with it. And she didn't just uh, say, well, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. He 
very gracious way, but very strong. There's a word about our Lord Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14. It's one of my life verses. Anybody know that verse? The Lord became flesh. We beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, I've been a pastor for lo these many mango seasons. And you run into all kinds of people. And they're all, I'm talking about all believers. But some of them, they, you know, they, they've got the truth. And if you don't like it, they've got a hammer to, to take you on. But those who can be gracious and hold the truth, that is to me an amazing thing. I think of the people that I've known throughout my life that really were able to do that. A lot of them were in vocational Christian work, but a lot of them weren't. I was thinking the other day about Ernie Harwell. Ernie and Lulu were dear friends of ours. They went to our church in Clearwater. Well, if you know baseball, you know Ernie Harwell's Hall of Famer and all this. He was the announcer for the Detroit Tigers. And we'd go up there and go to games and go with Ernie. And what hit me about Ernie was he loved the Lord God, but he was so gracious to everybody. And I think part of the reason Detroit is not having the problems Chicago is, it started with Harwell, it spread to the Tigers, and it's helped that city. When he died, this has not been long ago, they didn't put a plaque somewhere. The statue in front of New Tiger Stadium is Ernie Harwell, not a baseball player. And that's Daniel. He's full of grace. And you're going to see this all the way through. And he's going to let God put him where he wants him. And we will be seeing that as we go along. Now, I just had one comment. Yes, ma'am. About this. The, the eunuch, the, the, the man that... Was this right? He had God's favor with this man because he could have been a jerk. Yeah, he really was a good. That's a great point because he says, "I lose my head." He once said, right. "Yeah, yeah," and we don't know whether it was through the earlier influence of Daniel or he was just that way. But you're absolutely right. He was a great guy. He really was because he, and he lets. What does he let Daniel do? Ten, ten day days. trial. Right? Yeah, yeah, he lets him ten day trial. What's the outcome of the trial? They were fatter and better. I love that culture. You know, we don't say fatter is better now. Well, TV is now saying that, but anyway. Well, ten days out of out of three years is not nothing. But he does. But the answer to that question, I think, is in verse nine. God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander. Right. God, Daniel was trusting God, and God came through, and we need to realize. Yeah, that he says, "I am, I am afraid of the Lord my King, who appointed you for your food and your drink. For why should it, He see uh, your faces looking more to be haggard?" than the youths who are your own age, then you would make me forfeit my head to the king, and he was not kidding. And so the, you go on and read, but Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat. I'm glad I wasn't there. I'd have a hard time with that one. <laughs> to eat and water to drink. Then let your appearance be observed in your, our appearance be observed in your presence and, a, and the appearance of the youth who are eating at the king's choice food. And deal with your servant according to what you see. That's a tremendous step of faith. You, you really want to be sure... <laughs> I'm going to eat my veggies today, boy. And they did. So he listened to them at the end of in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better 
and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. And the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept them giving and kept giving them vegetables. I'm going to stop there. Where I want to. Uh, well, let's go on and do the end of it. They're there, and now they've got the three-year course, but they show who they're going to trust. Then at the end of the, no, verse 19, the king talked with them. Well, I do want to go back. At the end of the days of which the king had specified, verse 18, for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them. Uh, by the way, that was not a small thing. Not many people talked personally to the king but they do and they talk he talked with them and out of them all one was out of them all, all not one of them was found like all of them one not one of them was found like Daniel Hananiah Mishael and Azariah so they entered the king's personal service as for the matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better. I love this statement in Hebrew. It, it literally is ten yards higher. Ten hands. What do we measure hands by? Horses. Horses, yeah. They're like big horse. Sight of the commander of the officials. Ten times better than all, all, all the magicians and conjurers who were in the kings in his realm. Then Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Now, he continued after that. The first year of Cyrus the king is 539. Daniel will appear three years after that. He dies in 536. And so we have four men now who are serving the king. And the reason they are is they were prepared before they got to Babylon. Be ready for Babylon. And guess who is to get our children ready for Babylon? Saw a little Caleb there. Yeah, it's us. And we are to do that. And so we had that opportunity. And America can't be turned back. God, it can't happen. Whether it will, we do not know, but we are to give everything we've got like these four did. And these four were prepared by people back in the city of Jerusalem in the land of Judah, who probably, many of them were already dead, had died in the fighting, but they prepared their children. And that's what we're to do. Next week we're going to see that God gets involved in the picture. And that is uh, going to be dramatic. And the book is going to change at that point. We've been reading Hebrew up to chapter 2, and we'll read it up to chapter 2, 1 through 4, or 3. In chapter 4, we will turn the language over to the Chaldean smoke, to the king in Aramaic. It will be in Aramaic. The rest of the book to chapter 7 through 7 will be in Aramaic. And I don't read that very well, so I have to confess that to you. We'll have to deal mainly with the English text. And, uh, but we will be there next, for next time, chapter 2. And understand when you get in there uh, what God does for him and uh, what a tremendous thing this was. You know, I just thought of something. Think about when they left Judah. What was Judah? Judah was what we would call woke today. Oh, and what? yet they have they have it built into them a faith in God, and it didn't come from the. Yeah, that's why we asked the question: Who prepared them to have that line? What well, was the line, and who prepared? That's right. And we have, we're seeing that with young people now. And God has given us the chance. Most of us are out of college and so forth, I think, look around. But God has prepared us to, as it were, prepare the next generation. And that is his call. And that's why we're studying Daniel. Any other questions you have?
God said something about Daniel that's the only person he said it about. What's the address? Oh, it, it, it's in chapter 9. Uh, okay. He's a man highly esteemed by God. Yeah, that's, that's pretty heavy. Yeah. You know, you are highly... repeated again in chapter 11. Yeah, it's repeated again in 11. And any other questions you have? Daniel is one of those men that uh, Keith talks about all the time. Men of virtue. Yeah. He's been an incredible guy. And you're going to see him handle it graciously. Even, you know, in chapter 5 where you're having the banquet with Belteshazzar, the king. And we will in five deal with how we know that Daniel is a book written in the fifth century and not in the second century. We'll put in some of these things and understand them. But uh, we, we have a book that prepares us in, for now from what happened then. And it's right here. Okay, any other questions? If you have a question as you study, write it down. And um, I love to preach this book, but I, I, when I try to teach it, I have to slow down a little bit. So, but I, so we want to deal with anything that you'd like to do. So, let me clarify: these they were teenagers. Pro, this is what uh, Socrates said, and it's what. Uh, Xenophon, uh, these are two Greek philosophers, said they said they were 14 to 17. Actually, and, uh, they say they were 14 to 18, but they, it's only three years, so I don't know how they were measuring, but that's what they say. We do not know. I suspect that's true because the other literature we see uh, on ancient kingdoms, we have a lot on the Assyrians. We have a lot on the Babylonians. They were, they were prolific writers. That the time for the training of a young man was somewhere between four, 15, I would say, and 20. But this one, they said 14 to 7. So they're not typical teenagers like No, no, <laughs> they are not typical teenagers. They really aren't. And we've got to realize what they've gone through. These young men had grown up well, I'll give you my unsupported view of what happened. I believe that Josiah, who had a great influence on so many people, had an influence on these young men because he went to the throne very young. Look at the beginning of Josiah's life. And Chronicles is Second Chronicles. And uh, let's see how old he was when he began. Like eight. Yeah, he's very young. Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked with the Lord, uh, and did not turn to the right or to the left. For in the 18th year, verse 3 of his reign, he was still a youth. Or in the 8th year of his reign, not 18, he was still a youth. Uh, and he, while he was seeking he was still a youth, he began to seek uh, uh, the God of his father, David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah. So you have him when he's eight years old, when he's 16, and then... He'd be 20 when he began. 20, 20 when he starts really working. So he's going all the way up. And, and so if you he, stop and think, if Daniel was three years in training, and he was 17, 16 or 17, He's going to have his first big uh, battle challenge when he's 20. Yeah. What What is that challenge, baby? <laughs> well, tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream. Yeah. And, and what We're going to see it next time. It's, he's a new graduate. you got to understand, he's a graduate. Yes. And, and there's never a more dangerous time than when you're a recent graduate. And he's number one. And his other friends are two, three, and four. And uh, I want to tell you, you know, when you're number one in your uh, class like this, you, you're pretty proud of yourself. And uh, I remember I've told somebody, asked Lewis Johnson, who was our head of our order, Greek, uh, Greek department, that was my major. He said, in a, a week, uh, we're going to make a great mistake. We're going to 
at graduation, we're going to call you masters of theology. He says, but you're going to make a greater mistake. You're going to believe it. <laughs> and that really is true. Well, Daniel comes out of this, and he's not even, he hadn't gone before the king yet. He hasn't gone before the king. What we see in chapter 2 is, I mean, he's in serious trouble. See, Nebuchadnezzar was not like the normal king. He, he had a practical side to him that was tough as boot leather. And he, he, they, he has this dream, and you'll see it. And he, he said, I want to know what the dream. And all of his Kasdim, all of his wise men said, well, you tell us the dream, we'll tell you, king. He said, I know what you guys are like. You'll tell me and you'll make something up. I said, you got to know the dream. And, and boy, at that point, they said, well, we better plan our funeral because we're not going to be able to do that. It's a great, great chapter. Okay, great to be with you tonight, and we will be going on. And I'm going to ask uh, Brent, if he would, to uh, mention something about the sheet he gave us on this day. In 1789. Go ahead. And 234 years ago today. This is what our president, our first president, George Washington, wrote. Um, he was asked by Congress to put out a, uh, a commencement of thanksgiving and prayer and all that. And this is part of his prayer. I'll read the last of it. It says, well, before he says Father, but it says that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually, to render our national government a blessing to all the people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws, discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed, to protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, especially such as have known kindness unto us and to bless them with good government, peace, and concord, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue, and then increase of science among them and us, and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be best. That is a great prayer. You know, he said something in that prayer that David lived. He, he, he realized he as the leader was not over the nation. God is. And that's what he was recognizing. That's a great prayer. Thank you. Would you pray for us, please? Oh, Father, we, uh, we come before you. We, we remember what George Washington wrote 234 years ago today to our nation. Help us. Help us to be Second uh, Chronicles 7.14. Help us to humble ourselves, to pray about everything, to seek your face, and to turn from our wicked ways. And I am speaking of our brothers and sisters in Christ. All of us who believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to follow 2nd yes, Chronicles 7, 14 that you may be pleased with yes. who we are and heal our land. Amen. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.